welcome to the Audit 15 Fun podcast. My goal with this podcast is to bring relevant internal audit topics to the table at least every 15 days. Today, we're going to be talking with the former CFO of Enron, Andy Fastow. Mr. Fastow was the Chief Financial Officer of Enron from 1998 to 2001. In 2004, he pled guilty to two counts of securities fraud and was sentenced to six years in federal prison. He completed his sentence in 2011 and now lives with his family in Houston, Texas. Mr. Fastow is the only Enron executive who has taken full responsibility for his actions and repeatedly expressed remorse. He is credited with having helped to recover over $6 billion for Enron shareholders. Andy, a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, John. All right. So we're going to be talking about several topics, uh, current topics and some of the topics related to Enron and how that, uh, how, what internal auditors can learn from that. So one of the things that you, that I've heard you talking about in the past is the term legal fraud. So can you explain to those who have never heard about that uh, term, what does that term, where does that come from and what does it mean? Okay, John. Well, I'm not the person who came up with the term legal fraud, um, but it's, uh, I think, a very apt way to describe what happened at Enron. Um, the first time I heard that, that phrase was from uh, the authors of the book, Smartest Guys in the Room, which is really the, I think, only good book that's been written about Enron, uh, Bethany McLean and John Elkine. And they use the term to describe Enron. Uh, and what they meant by that was that technically what was done at Enron, at least I think what I was involved with, technically complied with the rules. And yet still the outcome of those transactions, those accounting maneuvers, was to paint such a false and misleading picture of Enron's financial health that it was fraudulent. So this is the conversation that people don't like to have, right? That you can technically follow the rules and still be doing something fraudulent or even at a minimum inappropriate, okay? And that, in my opinion, is really where companies get into trouble. It's this gray area. Right. Now, of, of course we have people who break rules intentionally break rules. Um, but the audit and compliance function has gotten very good at catching those people in those instances. Where companies really get into trouble is in this gray area where they can technically do something, but it leads to problems down the road. Now in Enron, it's a very egregious example of what it led to down the road with criminal prosecutions and bankruptcy. But there is case after case of companies just seeing uh, uh, a massive diminution of shareholder wealth or actions by uh, short sellers, plaintiff's attorneys, government uh, civil enforcement agencies, or just social media mobs that leads to huge problems. Um, but there's nowhere right now uh, in the audit process, in the compliance, in the risk management process, there's no one with specific responsibility 
to identifying, pricing, and managing risk in this gray area. That is the area where something may be technically allowed, but problematic. You know, we have a word in the English language that des describes a lot of this type of activity, and it's the word loophole. When I give talks to groups, when I meet with, uh, with groups and with uh, boards of directors, I, I often ask the groups, is the word loophole good or bad? No. And invariably, the vast majority of people think loopholes are good. And that makes sense. We're a rules-based society. Um, we take comfort in that. And we have this general belief that so long as we are technically following a rule, nothing bad can happen. Right. Okay. Um, but then I pose the question a little differently. After overwhelming support for loopholes, I say, hypothetically, you're sitting down to dinner this evening with your children. And one of your most, your most clever child says, you know, hey, mom, hey, dad, I just want to get one thing straight here. You've given me uh, a lot of rules I have to live by in this house. And I just want to make sure so long as I'm technically following the rules, if I get around the principle, the purpose of that right. rule, I won't be punished. I suspect that they'd have a very different reaction and they do have a very different reaction to that scenario. And it would probably lead to a conversation with their children or that clever child, if you will, right. about purpose and meaning and character. That is the conversation that companies often do not have. Now, some companies do. They have a culture, they have leadership that focuses on that, but many companies do not have that type of discussion, that gray area discussion. Right. And that's what leads to the problem. And in a nutshell, that was the Enron problem. Yeah, yeah. I, I have a four-year-old, so I can definitely relate with uh, a, a toddler, a ch children looking for loopholes. So. <laughs> uh, that's right. Uh, so a follow-up question to that answer is definitely agree that the risk is where where things are gray, right? Not in the black and white, not in the binary, yes or no. It's in the gray area. So from your perspective, what are some like areas currently that maybe there is some possible legal fraud going on? Just from your perspective, what you see going around in the world now? Well, um, I, I don't want to uh, accuse anyone of fraudulent activity with without specific knowledge, but I will tell you that the type of structured finance transactions and accounting maneuvers that Enron made are still going on. And in some cases, I can give examples where they're more egregious than what Enron did. I mean, I look at some structured finance transactions that companies are doing, and it makes me blush. And, and I was the CFO of Enron. It's difficult to make me blush. Um, uh, so uh, it's still going on. And look, you know, um, let's be honest about it. There's an entire industry of, of bankers and accountants and lawyers and other types of consultants. 
And all they do is help companies figure right. out legal, technically legal ways to yep. make their financial statements look better. Now, look, sometimes there's a very valid reason for doing these transactions. They can lower your cost of capital and, and other such things. Um, but um, they, they continued after Enron and um, they took maybe slightly different forms because some of the, the rules were accounting rules were changed, but, but it's very common, especially in the larger companies that can afford the cost of highly structured transactions. And of course, you know, accounting rules themselves, you don't have to do structured financing necessarily to achieve some of your objectives. Accounting rules are often complex, ambiguous, sometimes um, uh, non-existent. Um, and uh, that leads uh, to um, the temptation for abuse by companies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So tr trying to tie that back to some of uh, examples from, from Anron. So one of the things that maybe not a whole lot of people realize, but uh, the audit committee chairperson from Anron was an accounting professor. He was a dean at Stanford University. You know, obviously you had a, uh, a lot of like high caliber uh, individuals that were part of management and the board. But the board in that specific occasion did not see the smoke where there was a fire. So why, two questions there. Why do you think that happened? Why they didn't see the smoke? And then the second question is, what can uh, chief audit executives nowadays or any member of management who do see the smoke and interact with uh, board members and audit committees, what can they do protect shareholder value long-term for their organizations. Yeah. Okay, let me, let me back up and, and uh, before answering that and say, look, I don't necessarily think that these gray area transactions are wrong. And quite frankly, I don't think there's a, one answer to whether they're right or wrong. That's an ethical, moral decision. So I don't get into ethics or morality. I think that's, uh, that, that leads down a rabbit hole and you'll never, you'll never reach agreement there. What I'm suggesting is that when companies go into this gray area where you say there's smoke, if you will, mm -hmm. they, tend to, they tend to fail to identify well. And because of that, they don't price the risk well, and they don't manage the risk well. And this leads to the problem. So I am not suggesting uh, that, that companies avoid all of these gray areas, just the opposite. Quite frankly, companies have to be in the gray area in order to be successful in almost right. all cases, right? So look, it exists. And this shouldn't be a discussion about whether or not it should exist. The question is, right. how much risk is associated with that? And what do you do with that risk? And that's where the failure occurs. Okay, now getting back to your specific question about Enron. Look, Enron's board was not a window dressing political board. It was filled with incredibly intelligent, high caliber, successful businessmen. As you mentioned, Dr. Jadica was a former 
uh, Dean of Stanford and Chair Emeritus of the Accounting Department. So the question is, how do these things happen? I think it goes back to this mindset at Enron, which you might call culture a culture problem, which was that so long as we are te we're technically following the rules, anything goes. In other words, the view was binary, which was the mistake. Mm -hmm. The view of management as well as the board was so long as we're technically following the rules, there's no risk here. Or the worst risk is maybe a restatement risk. If the SEC comes back later and says they don't like our, our accounting interpretation. Um, but that was the extent of it. So when we came up with these exotic structured finance deals in order to um, make our financial statements look better, the board thought they were genius and said so explicitly in those words. Um, you know, I had the chair of the finance committee point at me, look at me and say, Fastow, you are an effing genius. Um, in retrospect, I don't think so, just quite the opposite. And he was saying it about what I consider to be our most egregious or most misleading structured finance deal. So um, look, it, it wasn't that any of these guys wanted to do anything wrong, as far as I know, or as far as I could tell, just the opposite. They wanted to do the right thing. It's that the mindset was stuck in this binary fashion. So long as we're technically following the rules, it's okay. And that was the problem. Because of that binary mindset, they failed to identify price and manage the risk associated with these exotic transactions. Yes, yes. It was the, the judgment might have been a little clouded at the moment, it sounds like. Um, so another uh, question specific to Anron and what can internal auditors you know, also learn from uh, that uh, circum those circumstances is uh, so sell sell side analysts. You know, it is reported that certain analysts were either silenced or they were not truly independent from Anron. And then I I've heard you um, you you had the recommendation in the past of you know just listen to earnings calls and see like how many uh, analysts are truly challenging management with their questions versus just you know asking easy questions. Do you think that analysts who are truly not independent from companies still exist today? And then the second question to that is, what are some other ways that internal auditors or just you know management can detect that that is happening at a company? Yeah, well, all you have to do is listen to the earnings call and, and um, gauge how obsequious sell-side analysts are to management, um, you know, they um, very often they the questions they ask sound like you know set up questions for politicians um, in order to ingratiate uh, that bank to the company with the with the hope of getting uh, the next underwriting payday. Um, so look, um, uh, what was uh, extremely curious in the Enron case was that on the one hand, the bankers were coming up with 
many of these exotic structures that helped create financials that were misleading. At the same bank, those sell-side analysts didn't seem to adjust for any of those transactions in their analysis. Now, some would argue that there's a Chinese wall or whatever phrase they use today between the analysts and the bankers. You know, I think you have to be a little more cynical than that and understand that they know what types of transactions their bankers are doing with the companies, um, or they should in any event if they're going to do a proper analysis. Um, so, no, I think, you know, uh, many, not all, but uh, many analysts uh, treat their job as a marketing job rather than analysis. Now, there, there are some uh, uh, real good exceptions to that you could find today. Um, the name escapes me at the moment, Steve. Uh, the analyst at Chase, who did a very good job analyzing General Electric, um, you know, and was willing to uh, put a sell recommendation on before anyone else. You know, he got it, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, he was able to dissect the company and adjust for the accounting maneuvers like crazy pension assumptions or other uh, crazy assumptions in their insurance subsidiary and and power subsidiaries and and, um, and make the proper adjustments and he made the right call so you know you, you get you get analysts that are really good at their job and willing to do that and you get some analysts that are you know just obsequious yeah that's a that's a good good takeaway for internal auditors uh, sell side analysts may see themselves more as as a marketing job versus actually analyzing the company. So that's, that's well, well, think about it. You know, there was a lot of controversy at Enron with, with the analyst who was at Merrill Lynch. I think his name was John Olson. And he complains that um, he got fired or taken off of the Enron account because he had a negative view on it. And it's widely reported in the press that Enron had something to do with that. Enron, as far as I know, had nothing to do with John Olson being reassigned or, or fired um, because of his view on Enron. I think it was the Merrill Lynch bankers who took care of that. And, and the reason was because uh, there was a big, a huge equity underwriting transaction that Enron was going to do. And uh, Merrill Lynch was pitching for that business. Um, but their analyst had a sell on the company. So how do you give that business yeah. to a bank whose own analyst is saying, don't buy the stock? Don't buy the stock, yeah. Um, it would be like if you walked into a car dealership and, uh, you know, a Ford dealership, and he said, don't buy a Ford, you need to go buy a Tesla. Right. Um, yeah. So... Um, uh, the bankers are smart enough to understand that they're not going to get the business if their analysts have sell recommendations. And so they put a lot of pressure internally on the analysts. Uh, in the banks, in the investment banks, the analysts, equity analysts have a rather thankless job in, in many cases. Yeah, yeah. They, they have definitely have a motivation to, you know, not move to the sell side. So, yeah. Um, 
So in your current work, one of the things that I've, I've, I've seen reported is that you have a list of uh, 75 red flags in the area of finance and culture that can indicate problems in a company without you know, given your secret sauce away here, but can you give, uh, you know, maybe two or three examples to internal auditors out, out there on what are some of those red flags? Well, some of the red flags would be uh, finding specific structured finance trends, clues that indicate the company is engaging in specific structured finance transactions. Um, one in the middle might be um, just tracking cash. You know, there's a huge difference between earnings and cash today. Yep. Um, and way over on the other end of the spectrum, the cultural side of the spectrum, um, you may just look at some of the behaviors, personal behaviors, if you will, or more soft decisions made by management. And, you know, uh, this sounds silly, but. Um, a company that has their annual retreat in uh, Las Vegas or Mykonos, mm-hmm. like who? What was the company that did that? Tyco, you know, had a million-dollar extravaganza yes, yes. In, yeah. in Greece or something. Yeah, that's a lot different than something. having than renting out the the convention room at uh, the Hyatt in Cleveland. <laughs> and it tells you a little bit, uh, again, that's, there's nothing dispose, dispositive about that decision. It just is an indication. And if, you could, if I could find four or five or six of those soft indicators, it often just raises the red flag and saying they're making certain decisions here that um, as a shareholder, I might not be comfortable with, or it might indicate uh, a certain way of thinking. Um, but I focus much more of my attention on finding the accounting maneuvers, the structured finance. How much mark to market earnings is there versus uh, how much fair value earnings is there? A new one that I just put on my list recently is is the company getting into NFTs? Oh, that's a good one. There are no rules for NFTs. And there are no rules being promulgated on the horizon for M- NFTs. So how do you value them? Right, right. It seems that valuations, and there's no market for them. It seems that NFT valuation is even more subjective than most fair value uh, valuations that companies do. Um, so um, if you see a company issuing a bunch of NFTs, and if that company were to do a structured finance transaction associated with NFTs, that's a huge red flag for that's me today. A, yeah, yeah. Very good point. Because, good. because the NFT is, they're able to pick a value. The structured finance transaction in conjunction with that may allow them to recognize it as earnings if they do a good job on the structured finance transaction. Um, so those are the types of things I look for. Yeah, and again, that's... I'm not suggesting that anyone's doing anything that breaks a rule. It's right. just, um, uh, of course, analysis. You want to find real economic value versus reported earnings. Right, right. And like you said, this is a completely new area. And, you know, 
they there are no rules or clear rules out there yet so <laughs> no and and the accounting organizations have said they don't plan on making any rules anytime soon yeah so, so if you if you're management and you have you know your short term focus that um that may be a a pretty tempting place to go yeah there you go well Thank you so much, Andy. Really appreciate you being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. For those uh, in the internal auto profession who want to uh, connect with you and maybe you know learn how they can get in touch with you for speaking engagements and so forth, what would be the best way for them to contact you? The best way to contact me is through the email, former Enron CFO at gmail.com. That's all one word, former Enron CFO at gmail.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, John.